perhaps the most memorable encounter I've had with anyone. Why would you ever buy a headless platform? Like, why are you defining your category of software by the thing that it doesn't have? Business users just want point and click everything and they want a big suite. You know, you're going to get crushed by Salesforce. And now it's funny because we've been named leader. So we're one of three leaders in Forrester. We're one of five leaders in Gartner. And we actually were just named a leader in IDC, their headless report as well. So we have a clean sweep of being leader in all three, but it's been crazy how quickly the market has oriented around what we're doing and how it's now the standard. Welcome to the Own Your Commerce podcast, where leading experts, brands, and innovators reveal strategies for e-commerce growth. I'm your host, Jay Myers, and this show is brought to you by Bold Commerce. Welcome to what I think is going to be a fascinating episode for a lot of people. I have with me today the Chief Product Officer of Commerce Tools and four times O'Reilly author, Kelly Getch. Commerce Tools is taking a fascinating approach at enabling digital commerce. They are referred to as a true cloud, headless commerce platform, providing the building blocks for the new digital commerce age. And those building blocks are 350 consumable APIs that really let you build any commerce experience you want. Fun fact, they coined the term headless commerce way back in 2013, long before it was as popular as it is today. So some examples of brands that use commerce tools are Audi, Tiffany's, Universal Music, Carhartt, and many more, plus some mutual brands with Bold, such as Harry Rosen, who leverages commerce tools APIs, but with Bold Checkout and other technologies to really create something special. And you know what? Shameless plug, but definitely check out harryrosen.com when you have a chance and you'll see what I mean. It's a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed it. I think you're going to definitely learn something from this conversation. Enjoy. Kelly, thank you so much for being on the show. It's really a pleasure. I know we had to go back and forth a little bit getting you on here and you've got a really interesting background in commerce. Why don't, before we start, tell us the story of you, where you came from and how and why you ended up with Commerce Tools. Well, first, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You've got a great podcast here, having listened to some back episodes. So my background actually started, well, I guess if you go really far back, it was in high school. I used to build websites for local businesses in small town where I grew up in Wisconsin. And this was back in the mid and late 90s. And folks would pay me a thousand bucks, two thousand bucks per page, you know, law firms and folks like that. So I actually did pretty well back in high school. It's a great job. But then I went to university and I was looking for a summer job. And it turned out that in my small town here, Footlocker.com was based and they were going through a really big ATG implementation, which was the big commerce platform back in the 90s and 2000s, later acquired by Oracle. So I worked for ATG, finished my studies, really loved that. I was the lead architect for Walmart. Great time, but you know I couldn't travel 100% of the time because my wife and I got married and had a child. So I ended up going to work for Oracle, where I was a product manager. And I really liked product management. Consulting was great, but I think product is better. In product management, I was lucky enough to cover Java EE and Exologic and Java Cloud Service and a bunch of other services there. And my last year at Oracle, I was responsible for microservices. And by that time, I had written e-commerce in the cloud for O'Reilly. And with microservices, it just kind of clicked. Like there has to be somebody out there doing commerce cloud and microservices. And after five years at Oracle, my boss, whom I loved and adored, left. And I said, you know what, it's time to get back into the commerce space. So I joined Commerce Tools in 2016. I actually Googled it, commerce cloud and microservices. And 
commerce tools came back as eight of the top 10 search results. And it turns out we actually had a lot of connections in common. And the CEO, my boss and I, he invented headless commerce back in 2013. We really hit it off. We see commerce in the world very similar. And I've been at Commerce Tools now for a little over four and a half years. It's an interesting time to join because it's an evolving space and you're kind of joining early, well, 2016 or 15 when it was, it was still very early on. And you know, now the concept of headless, which we'll kind of get into in a little bit and how you define that, but that's not a new word anymore. It would have been for sure when you were joining the company. That's very forward thinking. So I guess let's just talk about commerce tools in a practical kind of way. What is commerce tools and why does it exist? Well, a little history is in order. So the company was founded by Dirk Horig, who's still at CEO back in 2006. So commerce tools was actually founded as the Hybris Professional Services Group. And this was back when Hybris was in its first office and had just a handful of employees. So Dirk actually did the first couple Hybris implementations. The first Commerce Tools office was actually in the Hybris office. And then Dirk spun that out of Hybris and actually built an agency around it and was very successful at that. But you know, you have to remember Amazon Web Services hit the market in 2007, right? And really got going about 2009. And by 2011, Dirk had a decision to make, which was you know, continue on in the agency business or stop and pivot to product. And he thankfully made the decision to stop the Hybris consulting business. And in 2011, raised some money from local Munich investors and built a platform from scratch and launched that platform in 2013. And that's Commerce Tools today. So we're 100% product focused. And what we offer is Headless Commerce, which Dirk is credited as having invented. But it goes back to the name of the company. We are Commerce Tools. So rather than having a platform, right, like a Hybris or ATG or Webster Commerce or Shopify or someone like that, we offer Commerce Tools. So we have a big library of 300 individually consumable APIs. So when you log into AWS or GCP or Azure, you have this big collection of services that you can choose to use or not use, and then you can choose to build those into your applications. So we do the same thing, but for commerce. And that's great for folks who are have a legacy platform and are incrementally switching over to us. They really like that composability concept. And then we do have a lot of customers who say, you know what, I love what you've built here, but we do pricing so differently that no platform could ever handle our requirements. We're going to build that ourselves. And our response to that is great. You know, that's exactly what we want. So we have a lot of customers who will pick one or two or three pieces and then build that on their own as their own microservices. And what you want to end up with is a big catalog of APIs that your front ends can consume. Some provided by us, some provided by third parties like Contentful or Content Stack or Ampliance, and then some provided by search vendors and some provided by the customer or partner themselves. So we're really getting past this model where the commerce platform is the front office in a box towards a model that's very much aligned with public cloud, which is we're part of the ecosystem as if Google or Microsoft or Amazon built a platform and added it to their cloud offerings. Interesting. What does someone, I guess, purchase? What are they a customer of? What is like the thing that I guess it's the cloud infrastructure and with the tools wrapped around it, right? Or is there some aspect that every commerce tools customer utilizes to actually be a Commerce Tools customer? I would say first, the vast majority of our customers use at least 80% of our APIs. So it's not to the degree of Amazon or Google Cloud where people use one or two of them. 
the vast majority end up using all of them. And it might take a while. It might take six or 12 months, but they do. And when you go to commercetools.com, you sign up, you get a project key and you can start hammering our APIs or you can log into our merchant center, which is our business user tooling. And then you can see, you can manage your product catalog and your orders and everything else. So that's what they're getting. They're getting access to our APIs in the same way that, you know, you might get access to Stripe or Twilio APIs, for example. You know, it's the same concept. So then from a pricing model, is it API calls that affect pricing or how does that work? It's a function of the number of orders and the average order value. So it's usage-based. Gotcha. I guess like your role at Commerce Tools is chief product officer. And so why are you passionate about this approach to commerce? I am passionate because I've spent so many nights of my life having to troubleshoot production deployments and restore databases and upgrade JVMs and just doing all of the stupid things we used to do back then with commerce and commerce tools built a much better platform that is really aligned with the future. And what's great is since we really pivoted to enterprise hard in 2016. So I was hired as part of a group of folks below Dirk to go after enterprise very aggressively and really bring it out of Germany because to that point, it was very much of a German product. But I'm really passionate just because it's the right technology, right time, right place. And this is what the market has been needing for a while. But I remember when we tried to get into the Forrester wave for the first time in early 2017, it was Dirk and I and our head of sales. We went into Gartner's office in Boston. And first question from the senior analyst there was, you know, who the hell are you guys? And second, are you guys stupid? Like he totally didn't understand what we were doing. Why would you ever buy a headless platform? Like, why are you defining your category of software by the thing that it doesn't have? Business users just want point and click everything and they want a big suite. You know, you're going to get crushed by Salesforce. I mean, he just was so awful to us. And now it's funny because we've been named leader. So we're one of three leaders in Forrester. We're one of five leaders in Gartner. And we actually were just named a leader in IDC, their headless report as well. So we have a clean sweep of being leader in all three, but it's been crazy how quickly the market has oriented around what we're doing and how it's now the standard. Well, I would say that's probably the case with a lot of visionary type software is you're out ahead so that the market doesn't understand exactly it. And now the market is kind of catching up. So here at Bold, we've been in the e-commerce space for a while and kind of the word headless is interesting in and of itself. And I want to get kind of to how you define it, but it went from being a buzzword in 2016 or 17, people thought, what is headless? They didn't quite understand it. I guess, sorry, it wasn't a buzzword at that point. It was like something people were talking about. It became a buzzword in 2007, 18. 2018, I would say then most platforms would say, oh yeah, we're headless too. Every platform's headless, but it kind of became a simple definition of decoupling your front end and your back end. And that's headless commerce. How do you look at headless? Like kind of what's your definition when someone says, what is headless commerce? Well, if we go back in history, let's go back to the mid and late 90s. The commerce platforms at the time were very, very ahead of the content management platforms. So things like JSP, going back to the Java EE days, JSP actually came from ATG because back in the day, ATG needed a way to dynamically render content from the server side to the front end. And all of these platforms had to invent a lot of that front end technology that allowed for dynamic server side rendering of pages. Because before you just throw everything in an Apache web server directory and you know, you'd know you be done with it, they were static. But e-commerce mandated that they be very, very dynamic. 
So they actually pioneered a lot of that front-end technology work. So it made sense back in the day, if you're adopting commerce for the first time, that you want a platform that has the front-end and the back-end, and the two are very tightly coupled. And you know, you may or may not even have a WYSIWYG editor where a business user can drag and drop something. right? And that was seen as a really big deal back then. But since then, we've had front-end technology completely changed three or four times over now. right? It's really matured as a profession. And it's easier than ever to go out there and build or buy a front end, right? And you can pick up React off the shelf and use that or any number of front end stacks. Or you can go out to companies like Frontastic, or you could get View Storefront or Mobify before it was acquired by Salesforce. You can go out and buy a pre-built front end. And at the same time, the commerce vendors had a really standard set of templates, right? And a Shopify website looked like a Shopify website, and they all looked very similar to each other. And you also had IT controlling a lot of those experiences. So I still remember, you know, it wasn't that long ago that Walmart had folks submitting IT tickets to do pixel changes on websites, you know, and that was a whole process. So business has really grown, technology has matured, and also the pace of change is dramatically accelerated. And all of that's led to you now have a front end that is built on its own release cycles. It's built, it's released, it's changed And many times those front ends are being updated 50 times a day. You also have many more front ends than you ever used to have. Back in the day, it was just a website. And now it's at least a website and mobile and, you know, a few others. So it's multi-headed and, you know, you can't expect a commerce platform to have a good Swift development IDE, for example. So decoupling the front end from the back end allows business users to use business tooling to go and manage that experience. Because ultimately, for the majority of brands that are not Amazon or Target <laughs> or Walmart, you're selling a differentiated product, right? They're considered purchases. You're selling jewelry or electronics or, you know, a musical instrument. You're selling something that is not just a, hey, Alexa, buy me some toilet paper kind of a purchase. It's something more considered than that. And that's where you need to engage with your customers. You need to show them product videos. You need to do unboxing videos. You need to engage with them on social. You need lots of product content right? You need to build your brand. You can't just sell a thousand dollar handbag in a standard Magento style shopping grid, right? You need a emotionally compelling, engaging experience that's driven by marketing. And it's nice because now you have a clear delineation between your front end and your back end, right? You've got a contract there. Front end can iterate whenever it wants to. It's driven by marketing. And then your back end is controlled by IT and they're able to iterate when they want to. So it's a really different change, but it has been very widely adopted because of its benefits out there. Okay, so then composable commerce, how would you define that? And how do the two work together, I guess? I have some personal history with this. So we at Commerce Tools, I've written three more books since then, Microservices for Modern Commerce, APIs for Modern Commerce, and GraphQL. We at Commerce Tools talked a lot about microservices. The challenge with microservices is it didn't necessarily capture everyone who is involved with this new space. It's a more extreme form of composable commerce. Composable commerce broadly is being able to compose your experience from many different APIs, which may or may not be backed by microservices. What we had been talking about at Commerce Tools and Pioneered was APIs backed by microservices. So it's a bit more of a rigid version of that. Composable is the more general term, and it allows you to have a monolithic app that also exposes APIs, but to have some composability to it, which I still kind of disagree with, but I think composable commerce is a much better, more friendly term to the market than microservices and APIs and things like that. 
is this a correct statement? A brand could essentially piece together best in breed of whatever their e-com stack tech stack is, and that'll be different for every brand, but whether that's where their ERP, their product information management, their OMS, their CMS, their customer database, all the different aspects that make up you basically essentially pick which one makes sense for your brand and how you want to do commerce and then compose them together to build your solution. And then commerce tools kind of helps provide the tools to connect everything. Well, kind of. So the first part of that, 100%, yes. Composable commerce is best of breed. That's basically what it is. We are APIs. So in the same way that Twilio offers APIs or Stripe or any other vendor, we offer commerce APIs. We're very focused on doing commerce really, really well. So that's what we do. Integration, there isn't really that much in terms of integration between any of these APIs. You might send out events, for example, using SNS or SQS or whatever cloud vendor they might be. But it's not like those traditional platforms where it mediated the engagement with the customer, where everything had to integrate with the commerce platform. You know, think of us as a library of APIs. Think of us as a box of crayons, right? Or colored pencils, where you can pick and choose the one you want, but they're not really integrated with each other. Gotcha. So describe a perfect client for commerce tools. A perfect client for us is someone who is a retailer or a brand somebody who's been on a legacy platform, specifically Oracle Commerce, because they killed that product and they're all looking to leave. That was the big platform for 20 years. And they've gone headless already and they've made a commitment to digital transformation. And part of that is demonstrated by the way that they approach IT. You know, they might've built a couple of microservices. They're probably using cloud. That's a perfect example of a customer. So to give you some of our customers, AT&T.com uses us. Ulta Beauty does. They do a couple billion a year online. Lego.com does. Burberry.com. Express.com. We have a shared customer with Harry Rosen. We have a pretty broad assortment of customers across uh, quite a few different industries. But it's typically someone who's been abused by one of the big mega vendors and is really feeling constrained by that old approach and is feeling the need to do innovation where they hadn't necessarily felt that need before. And the ease of commerce tools is they don't necessarily have to replatform everything. They can use APIs and best in breed for which pieces of the stack make sense. Like the term replatforming probably doesn't make sense in the commerce tools world. Yeah, I mean, you're migrating over to us over the course of six or 12 months because you know nobody has the time or budget or risk tolerance to move an entire customer-facing.com that does a billion dollars a year in revenue. And then flip the switch and all of a sudden everything goes through commerce tools, right? Like that's a really good way to get fired if you're an executive. (laughs) That's nothing to do with us, right? I mean, we're solid product, but there are obviously a lot of integrations and intricacies involved with a move like this. So most of our customers will start by using us for like a product detail page, for example. They'll use us for that and then they'll use us for the category pages and they'll just kind of work their way through the product catalog. And then they'll start using us for customers and then finally for orders. And that takes time. You know, it's an API every week, you know, give or take, and you just incrementally switch to us. Another way to do it is to pick a market as a business that you don't really care about that much. It sounds harsh, but I mean, it's true, right? So we have a huge customer in South America, and they just bought a business in Peru, and they have eight retail stores, right? And they're going to be expanding that business. 
But they started out by using us two years ago by saying, hey, nobody cares about these Peru stores. If you guys screw it up, then it's fine because we'll just shut it down. (laughs) And it was seen as a good way internally for them to get experience with our platform, learn how it works, develop that expertise. And then once they tackled that, they went live in about six weeks with that one because that was all Greenfield. And then they started tackling the flagship.com, which they're now live with. So you know, that's an example of risk mitigation. Start with something really small, learn about it, and then just work your way over to the flagship.com. Makes sense. So once everyone is potentially transitioned off of Oracle <laughs> and there's no one left there, how do new customers come to Commerce Tools? Like, could a completely new brand starting today, or is it typically always they're existing and they move on to it? But let's just say Oracle didn't exist and there wasn't anyone left on there. What would be the motivation for the build with commerce tools? Well, we actually have a very wide assortment. So it's not just Oracle Commerce, but yes, for an ideal, that's an ideal. Gotcha. It's a high win rate on those guys. So at the very top end of our market, like we just signed John Lewis in the UK, for example, that's a good solid multi-billion dollar year brand. And they were choosing between building it from scratch on their own or buying us. So at the top end of our market, we see five, six, seven of those per year that come across, right? It's build or buy. And then on the buy side, it's just us. So that's one avenue. Another is replacing those big legacy incumbents. So whether it's ATG or Hybris, which is owned by SAP or IBM Webster Commerce, you know, you see a lot of those out there where they were first generation 90s and early 2000s era platforms and they needed to get out of those old school platforms and switch over to us. Another is we see folks that have outgrown like Shopify, for example, or big commerce. I'll give you an example, Purple Mattress. They do a couple hundred million a year online in mattresses. That's a perfect example of somebody who got pretty far with Shopify, but they needed something different, right? They needed something more because they actually got to be a real business. So they came over to us. And then we have folks doing really new, interesting use cases that we never used to see before. And these are all net news. So NBC Universal bought us. They're doing shoppable commerce. So if you're watching one of the Real Housewives of something or other, It'll show you a QR code on the TV screen where you can scan that QR code and buy the handbag that's featured. Jeez, my wife doesn't need to know that. (laughs) You know, so that we also do all the in-car connected commerce for Audi and BMW. So they're manufacturing their cars with options in the car that may not be enabled at the time of purchase. So I'll give you an example. Let's pretend I live in Florida. If I live in Florida, I'm not going to get heated seats in my car. That's a lot of money for a feature I'm not going to use. I live in Wisconsin, actually do live in Wisconsin. Any car I buy has to have heated seats. That's a requirement. But what about all those Florida cars that get shipped up to Wisconsin for resale after the two-year lease is up? And what Audi is doing is they're going to be charging you, if you want to enable that feature, you can buy that feature for, let's say, 2000 bucks, right? And it's a permanently added feature to the vehicle. Or if you're going into the mountains, you know, for five bucks a month, you can add that feature on an a la carte basis. It's not something they turn on, like they would actually ship the new seats. No. So the car is manufactured with a lot of the options there. They're just not enabled. Because if you think about it, like the parts are actually really easy. It's not an expensive feature to do. What's expensive is all the variations in the manufacturing process. So if you can build the same car, build it more streamlined, and you can make the entry-level price lower, you can build yourself a healthy subscription business by adding more of those features on a subscription basis over time. And from a customer standpoint, it makes sense. Like somebody buys my car that I'm selling and they're buying it in Florida. They don't have to keep paying that monthly fee to use that feature for the heated seats. 
Yeah. Well, and like with self-driving features or self-parking or all the cars have all the cameras already and it's now which features are enabled. Like the manufacturers are kind of doing this, but they're not doing it as advanced like Audi is. But yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. Even Tesla did this. I don't know if you know, but one of the models of Tesla's, maybe it's all of them, actually have more battery capacity than you're allowed to use. There was a big hurricane that hit last year and it made a lot of news when they software enabled everyone who had not paid for that premium extended battery feature to use that feature for a week. And that's an example of they have the feature. It's in the car. It's something you can buy, but they don't give it to you for free. It's something you have to pay for as an option, but it's there because why not just make them all the same? Oh, totally. I just want to go back a little bit on the build versus buy. I have a hard time seeing why someone would choose build versus buy. Like what is a motivation where a brand says it makes more sense for us to completely build from scratch versus use commerce tools? When do you lose those deals? What's the politically correct way of saying this? Egos? (laughs) Well, fair enough. Yeah, I guess. There are folks out there who they're building an empire and, you know, they're CIOs or CTOs and they want to build a big team and get a lot of budget. You know, maybe they've had a poor experience with IBM 10 years ago and they say, you know what, I'm going to build it. But, you know, it's hard to see that as a credible option because we at Commerce Tools have spent so many years and so much money and so many people building this platform. And I just think, you know, why on earth would you want to deal with this yourself? If I look at the amount of work it took for us as Commerce Tools to add in extended digits on prices, because with cryptocurrencies, you can have 30 digits for pricing, right? So we had to add that feature. You know how difficult it is to add that feature? (laughs) And you talk about database storage and document sizes and I mean, it's just from a UI perspective. I mean, for a thousand reasons, that was a really difficult feature to add. But, you know, I can't imagine if you're a retailer that there would ever be positive ROI for adding some stupid little feature like that. Well, those are probably the same people that insisted on having their servers in their own building forever as well, right? Go back 15 years before cloud. That was the big challenge. And so now time will prevail and they'll come around. It will. And the market's moving in this direction. Like folks want to buy services a la carte that do one thing and one thing really well. Yeah. And then eventually it becomes table stakes for a certain service. It's hard to imagine, you know, like we're a fairly large company at Bold and we would never imagine that it would make sense for us to have our own servers inside our building that we're cooling and we're like, it wouldn't even cross our minds. And eventually it just has to come to that with build versus buy for commerce as well too. Like, I guess in my head, I'm there already. So I have a hard time understanding why any brand would still think that way. Yeah, but I mean, put yourself in the shoes of a up and coming hotshot CTO who wants a huge budget for next year, you know, and they could very well implement it. And then the names of a few folks I'm not going to mention, but you know, there's some high profile CIOs in the US retail space who have done this and they build it over the course of two years. They get some good press and they use that job to get another position somewhere else, you know, very senior position. And then it's somebody else's problem to deal with all the maintenance work on that. You know, it's their responsibility to do the stupid web logic upgrade. You know, I mean, take your pick of all the stupid things that don't involve you selling to customers that a retailer shouldn't be doing. It's crazy. But I understand it from their perspective. If you're an up and coming exec and want to make your mark and get a better job somewhere else, and you have a boss that you can convince to give you $100 million. I mean, Machiavellian politics here, that's their thinking and their math. And we don't hardly ever lose to that. I mean, maybe once a year, we'll lose a deal to somebody who builds it themselves. But even then, they tend to come back to us because 
it's just a big waste of money and time and distraction to build a commerce platform. Well, and you're then positioned perfectly to support them when they do come back because they can piece by piece move over in a way where it actually probably <laughs> makes sense as well too. Yeah, I think I know some of the ones you're mentioning as well too, but we, yeah, we won't. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess then on that topic, like what does the world look like when commerce tools achieves its goals? Like if you've done everything, I know like it's a relatively new company, I say new, six, seven years, but you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, what does commerce tools look like and the brands that are using it? Or is it like now, but just more widely known? I'm going to say something that probably is going to get misconstrued, but I would love a future where commerce is commoditized and you don't really know who your commerce vendor is. Why would that get misconstrued? I mean, I think that's a great statement, but... I mean, we as a commerce vendor have been talking forever about our differentiation and everything else. And, you know, we're very differentiated, right? We've got a really rock-solid commerce offering. But, you know, let's go back 10 or 15 years to the load balancing era. I remember having to go out and buy these gigantic F5 physical appliances. They were a million bucks, at least. You had to get their professional services team to implement them. You know, they were capital purchases and it was very, very specialized. And that's because back in the day, that's all you had. And, you know, there's a very strong analogy there to the commerce platform space, right? You had to go out and buy Salesforce and then you needed to write them a very large check. And then you needed to have Salesforce developers, which is demandware, you know, and work with their very specific JavaScript extension engine. And, you know, it's very specialized. And I think where we're getting towards as an industry, which is a good thing, is what has happened with load balancing, which is you can go to any public cloud now and you literally tick the box that says, I want this load balanced, right? And the public cloud does it for you. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. And I think we're getting to that point with commerce as well. Slowly, you're starting to see this now with Google Cloud, where they have some retail APIs. You know, Amazon has long offered integrations with AWS. Azure, you know, I think we'll get there at some point. They have some retail offerings. But, you know, I'd love to get to a point where we're just another API in one of the, not the marketplaces, but the actual core cloud. And you can just commerce enable stuff. Whether you're a huge enterprise or a single developer and you want to add that add to cart button, you should be able to call an API and do that. Like that should be a really easy thing in the same way that doing load balancing now is a really easy thing. So that's what I'd like to get to where commerce is just commoditized and you don't need commerce tools developers, you need cloud developers. Just like you don't need F5 developers anymore, you need cloud developers. And that's exactly our extension model is we are part of the cloud as a first-class citizen. You event data out and then you write Lambda functions to change that data or to do something based on that. So we're very much in alignment with that trend and I don't think there's anybody else really doing what we're doing specifically in the commerce space. And I would like to get to a world where commerce is commoditized. Well, I think that's a fantastic vision. Makes perfect sense to me. And it's aligned with, there's very few people that wouldn't say, you know, when they're predicting where commerce is going, it's commerce is happening everywhere. It's not just happening on a online store and it's being literally extended. It's wherever the customers want to buy, when they want to buy, how they want to buy. And so your vision of that future, I think perfectly aligns with where the market would generally say that commerce is going. So I don't know, it sounds like you're in a great space. <laughs> but you know, it's still not a widely shared vision out there at all. 
because a lot of folks, if you talk to them in the commerce space, they're talking about, you know, some crazy new bell or whistle that they're adding to their platform. In the same way that the F5s of the world were talking about some crazy new feature they were adding to their hardware load balancer back in the day. They're missing the point, I think, in many cases. Well, we're getting close on our time here. So I want to ask you a few quick, I don't know, we just call them our lightning questions. I think this has been very, very informative. I'm very thankful for your time. I've learned some stuff. I know our listeners are definitely going to learn as much as well. Are you ready for a quick lightning round? Sure, let's do it. I don't know if you read any of these questions ahead of time (laughs) or not, but either way, we'll fire them off here. So what are some of the biggest mistakes you see commerce, e-commerce brands make? Cookie cutter, templatized websites. They all look the same. (laughs) And if I'm going to spend some serious cash on something interesting, uh, present, you know, you got to earn the money. And if it's a standard product grid with your logo there and nothing else that's differentiated, I'm not going to spend money with you. Do you have a pet peeve when you're shopping online? I hate having to wait for shipping. You know, I've gotten spoiled by Amazon. Typically it's a day, you know, but a lot of brands out there, you know, it's 10 plus days in many cases, business days. And I think it's obscene. I think that's going to be solved in the next year or two. There's so many people working right now on same day, local, almost real time delivery. And like the networks of drivers are out there, especially with everything happening with COVID right now. I see a big shift happening there. So I agree. And I think that is going to be interesting. And that's actually going to probably move a lot of the power back to the local companies that are able to serve the local market. So it'll be interesting. What's your favorite thing about your job? It's that I do so many different random things. You know, I might start the day reviewing a legal contract, might do a deep dive on MongoDB sharding, you know, the next meeting, might talk to the CIO of one of our customers and another, might talk to our investors for another, like I'm all over the place all the time. And I like the variability of the work. And you might end up on a podcast with Jay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Perk of the job. That's right. Yeah. I noticed you left that out there. (laughs) So speaking of, you mentioned what mistakes you see, cookie cutter templates. What's one of your favorite online stores or something where you've shopped recently that has stood out to you or you've really enjoyed? My favorite store on earth. It can be a commerce tools brand as well too. That's totally fine. It's actually not. It's been my favorite store since 1997. It's eBay. And I have a weird collection of I like really, really nice cashmere sweaters. And it's one of the very few hobbies I have in life. And (laughs) I love going on there. It's like a treasure hunt every time. And I have like 100 different RSS-based alerts set up. And, you know, you'll see somebody in like Italy list a sweater from 20 or 30 years ago. And you can get the most phenomenal deals, you know, a handmade Italian knit sweater for 90, 100 bucks. And a lot of times it's because people don't know what they have. You know, it's grandpa died or, you know, somebody died and, you know, the kids are posting it all online. They might misspell names and brands and words. I think I beat the system with all my RSS alerts. So if you ever see me, you'll probably see me wearing a cashmere sweater of some sort. So this is my ignorance to cashmere, but do they hold their value? Like a 20-year-old cashmere sweater, it still looks and feels? They actually don't hold their value very well unless there are a few specific brand names. Some of those brand names can get really, really valuable. I'm not wealthy enough to spend ten or 20000 bucks on a sweater, of course, and you'd have to be stupid to spend that much money. But there's an active community out there of folks who spend ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 on these very intricate handmade, and they're just beautiful too sweaters. But no, I think a lot of it's just finding hidden old gems of really, really well-made stuff from a few years ago, a few seasons ago, a few decades ago even, because they hold up perfectly. The material's perfect. 
it's cashmere for a reason, right? And unless it's all filled with bugs. <laughs> well, you mentioned Burberry is a commerce tools store, right? Aren't they big on cashmere? I think they've got a few, but no, they're more about overcoats and things like that. And I love their stuff, but I'm not that wealthy. <laughs> I need to be like a banker in London or something to be a good Burberry customer. I'm not though. What's some big trends in commerce that you are personally excited about? GraphQL. Love GraphQL. I actually just wrote a book on it in January of this year for O'Reilly. It's a complement to your APIs, very similar to like SQL, right? So with SQL, you can query data from multiple tables and you can get a single response back. The same is true of GraphQL, but for commerce and APIs. So Facebook actually invented it and pioneered it. Twitter adopted it and has been using it for years now. And every time you pull up any number of social media or other websites, you're using GraphQL. And Commerce Tool is a good 75 plus percent of our customers are doing GraphQL these days. But I think it's fascinating. It's a big game changer. And from a client developer standpoint, being able to just ask for exactly what you need and nothing more and nothing less and not having to worry about authenticating with different APIs, it's huge. And it allows you to move really, really quickly on the front end. Interesting. Last question. A lot of our listeners are business owners and entrepreneurs. Any favorite quote or business advice that has impacted you that you'd like to share? It's kind of dark, but you know, never attribute to malice that which can be explained by stupidity or not even stupidity, but you know, maybe it's a lack of organization and people, maybe you're not getting an email response, not because the person doesn't like you, but because they are not organized enough to keep on top of their inbox. Or maybe somebody didn't show up to your meeting because they have 10 other meetings. Or maybe somebody's not buying your product because you're not the right product for them, you know, and they don't know it yet. Or, you know, like, I think we as humans tend to attribute other people's actions to very narcissistic tendencies of them not liking us or them not thinking we're good people or, you know, them not doing something because of me. And as I've gotten older, I've realized people have their own demons to deal with. They have their own challenges. A lot of people just simply can't even stay on top of their emails. So because you didn't get a response to an email, it's not necessarily a reflection of you. It's more often a reflection of them. I literally just listened to the Tim Ferriss podcast this week with Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great. And I know he's not the one that said that quote. And I was just trying to Google who it originally was, but they talked a lot about that on the most recent episode, Tim Ferriss. Jim Collins actually was the one that talks about it. And I thought that was a fantastic quote too. And it's so funny that you mentioned that. Interesting. I'll check out the podcast. Yeah, it's worth listening. I mean, Jim Collins is fantastic and it's a great episode as well too. So, well, Kelly, I can't thank you enough for giving us the time and our listeners the time. Where would someone go to learn more about commerce tools or any place you'd like to direct our listeners? CommerceTools.com would be great. My LinkedIn, I'm always posting there. So send me a connection request there. And then actually do a podcast with the CEO and founder of Commerce Tools, Dirk Horig. The podcast there is Commerce Tomorrow. So we interview lots of good folks there as well. I'm glad you mentioned that. CommerceTomorrow.com. I actually just recently found out about this podcast as well too. And I wanted to make sure I called that out. I'm going to make sure I add that in the show notes as well too. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Kelly. That's it for another episode of Own Your Commerce. If what you've heard has helped you in any way, I'd love it if you'd leave us a review in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. It's a new podcast and reviews really help spread the word. And if you know someone you think that might benefit from this podcast, share it with a friend. If you'd like to learn more about Bold, visit boldcommerce.com. You can view all our past episodes. And if you have a story you'd like to tell, we'd love to have you on the show. You can apply to be a guest or suggest a guest on our website as well.